Today we have a really special episode. I got to speak. I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal. Dr. Neal is professor of African American Studies and the founding director of the Center for Arts, Digital Culture, and Entrepreneurship at Duke University. He offers classes in hip-hop, black, mus- black masculinity, pop culture, digital humanities, you name it. Uh, that He's an author. He's written multiple books, uh, including What the Music Said, Black Popular Music and Black Public Culture, Soul Babies, Black Popular Culture and the Post-Soul Aesthetic. The list goes on. Uh, that's his bio that you'd read on line on Wikipedia. I first met Dr. Mark Anthony Neal at Duke University. I saw there was a class called, I think it was Hip Hop 101. Of course, I signed up and I walked into this class. I thought it was going to be sort of an an easy one because I loved hip hop, so I probably knew, knew everything already. And lo and behold, this was like a real class and we had real discussions and read real books and read, wrote real essays, and over the over my four year four years at Duke, I I took numerous I, as many of Dr. Neal's classes as I could. Um, he was and is one of the smartest people, if not the smartest person I've ever run into. Uh, I I'm recording this intro after he's gone, so I don't embarrass him. Um, we would sometimes attend panel discussions that Dr. Neal would be featured on. So imagine four academics on a panel discussing an issue, whether it be race or masculinity or gender roles in hip hop. And our professor, Dr. Neal, just made everyone seem so stupid. Uh, and that's when we realized how smart he, he really was. Um, so... Today, uh, he very lovingly came over to my house, and I got to ask him all the questions I've, I've wanted to ask him. Um, we get into race in America, music in America, um, white guilt, uh, what that means, should you have it, what do you do as a society member of privilege to help with those that are marginalized um, and what advice he has for 18 to 30 year olds who are looking for their path um, so without further ado please enjoy this very special episode of what does this all mean with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal so Dr. Neal hey what's up Mike we are Reunited. Yes. Reunited. Yes, yes, yes. I want to start, where were you born? I was born in the South Bronx. Okay. Uh, December 2nd, 1965. Um, so the same year as the 1965 Immigration Act. And for the listeners, what was that act? What did that mean? Um, that's basically where they, they got rid of the quarters for immigration. Um, so you start to see this incredible influx of folks coming from uh, the Caribbean, Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Haiti, um, Puerto Rico. There's much more of an influx of folks coming from Puerto Rico, though obviously Puerto Rico mm-hmm. um, has a relationship with the U.S. Um, 
I tell folks that hip hop couldn't have happened without that immigration act because uh, cool, cool Herc doesn't come to the U.S. Yeah, that's right. You, you know, as you're as you're telling act. that story, I'm reminded of something I learned in one of your courses. I don't remember which one, <laughs> but I'm reminded of learning that so many of my favorite rappers really they didn't come from Africa. Right. Their parents or grandparents came from the West from, Indies. From the West Indies, Caribbean. Right, yeah. like in Biggie, like if you hear Biggie's mother we speak. Biggie, um, I always joke, you know, Jay never claims a West Indian connection, but his, his dad's name was Adnis. So it's like, uh-huh. and so when you see the video with him and Damian Marley, bam, um, it's like an unspoken trip back home, I think. Wow. For him, but yeah, I mean, um, my parents were from the South. My father's from uh, Augusta, Georgia. My mother was from North Carolina, but her family moved to Baltimore. Um, so I had Southern roots. Um, but you know, one of the reasons why my first BFF was Joan Morgan, you know, who of course is a great hip hop feminist thinker. Mm. Um, her family came to the U.S. from Jamaica when she was three years old. We lived in the same tenement building in the South Bronx. And what was it? A Christian household that you grew up in? You know, it's interesting because my, um, my mother's side of the family, um, from cousins who are a little older to me to uncles and even my grandmother, um, they were all some version of uh, either ordained or itinerant ministers. Wow. Um, my mother broke away and moved from Baltimore to New York City when she was 17 years old, in part because she was trying to get away <laughs> From from the strictness that that uh-huh. they came along with that, um, so you know we weren't religious in that sense. Um, but my mother actually sent me to a Seventh Day Adventist elementary school. Okay. So I did you know private school grades one through eight, um, Seventh Day Adventist, uh, and my dad, who I think I could count on one hand how many times I saw him actually in a church. Um, but he spent all his Sunday mornings listening to gospel quartet singers and, and quintet singers like the Mighty Clouds of Joy and, um, you know, Sam Cooke with the Soul Stirrers and, and groups like that. And was that, bef- was bef- that before Sam Cooke was secular? Yeah, he listened to a lot of Sam Cooke's gospel stuff. He actually didn't listen to a lot of Sam Cooke's secular stuff. But he, that was know. a big deal. I remember that from your course, too. It's a big, big, big deal, deal when Sam Cooke stopped singing yeah. about God. Because, you know, first of all, there are a lot of folks who thought it was blasphemous. You know, Ray Charles dealt with the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because it know. sounded like church music. Well, that's the thing about, about, about Ray sex, Charles. Right? You know? Ray Charles' stuff sounded like gospel music. <laughs> um, you know, Sam Cooke was just a, a, a famous gospel singer who crossed over. Yeah. Um, but he opened up the floodgates, you know. So, you know, Aretha probably is the most famous person that comes after him. But all these folks go from the church into the secular world. Um, but for my dad, and both my mom and dad, what it meant is that um, I grew up with a sense of spirituality that wasn't connected to physically going to a building called a church or 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 identifying a, a particular sect of religion as the right way, you know. I think I always saw it as something that was so much more organic. It was organic for my parents. What does that look f- like for you now? <laughs> well, you know, or if, I, if it's changed, you know, when I go to church, um, and that so almost, you do go to church I, sometimes. It, on occasion. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
uh, almost always black churches, almost always um, churches that are either Baptist or uh, AME, African Methodist Episcopal. Um, but it's they're very comfortable spaces for me. The music plays. I, I know the, the sounds music of the choir. The music is incredible. I, I know what the oratory looks like. Um, but, you know, I also spent a lot of time when I was in college um, around black Muslims. Um, in fact, one of my most important mentors uh, when I was in, in school was someone who was training to become a minister within the nation of Islam. Um, so when I'm in those spaces, I, I fall in very comfortably also. Mm. Right? So like th the question, I think why I think it ties into some other things I want to talk about today is when you think of yourself, mm -hmm. do you think of yourself as your body or is there is it something else that's occupying your body at this time? Wow. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Um, I think there are clearly ideas and people, even sounds, um, that I'm a portal to. Um, mm. I, I think about that in terms of um, what I really, part of what I really represent in the world now um, are all the things that my parents gifted to me, you know, which included, you know, whoever I am in the world um, there's a way in which they imagined that for me, even if they didn't know what that <laughs> was going to be. So I always try to, to, to you know, represent the spirit of that. Um, same thing with my, my mother's mother, my grandmother, and, and, and my mother's people in Baltimore. Um, those sounds, um, you know, whether it's those um, classic Motown rhythms of the 1960s, um, when both of my daughters were babies, um, you know, like infants who aren't aware of anything. I'm playing them Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, you know, because so, I wanted to make sure I knew there would be so many other sounds out there that would compete <laughs> for their attention. But I wanted to make sure that when they heard that sound, it was something that was familiar and loving and comfortable to them right even as they might be listening or interested in all kinds of other sounds so it sounds to me like you seem to be uh, uh, carrying on uh, or part of a lineage is that is yeah, that I mean, accurate I, I, I like to think of it that way um you know for if for my own personal sense of being in the world the work that i do um I, i'm a I'm big on this idea that whatever I am, you know, it's standing on a foundation that was built from other folks. Um, and you have to acknowledge those foundations. You have to acknowledge those um, inspirations, those influences. Um, you know, what whatever I am in the world, it, it's not because of me, right? It, it's because of so many of these other forces. What were some of those gifts your parents gave you? Well, for my dad, um, and my dad dropped out of school in 10th grade. Um, he never learned how to read, um, so he functioned for 72 years as a functional illiterate. Um, the last 40 of those years. Which in, takes talent. Yeah, the last 40 of those years in New York City, right? So, you know, literally getting around New York City, not necessarily being able to, to read street signs uh -huh. and, and stuff like that, and, and he managed to navigate. 
the uh, city. Uh, you know, I guess we derisively might call that street smarts, <laughs> um, as opposed to someone you know who kind of had a an intellectual acumen about the urban environment, the urban landscape. Um, but he worked in you know, the things he passed on to me was a work ethic. Um, when I was in their house, which was you know until I was twenty one. Um, he worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. Um, I never saw him miss work. <laughs> um, I never really saw him sick. Um, so he didn't take any days off. He would get two weeks vacation in the summertime. Um, but he worked all the time um, and seemed to enjoy it. So the work ethic was was part of it, um, and it's you know the irony of that is uh, my oldest daughter is like she picked up on that mm. naturally. Wow. Um, but the other thing for my father was that he loved the music. Um, so his Sundays, you know, the time that was his time, um, you know, if there wasn't a baseball game on, because the other thing he passed on to me a real love of the game. Um, if there wasn't a baseball game on for us to watch together or to go to. We lived, you know, 15 minutes from Yankee Stadium. Um, he was listening to music eight hours on Sundays. He would start with all of these gospel quartets, um, even though his job was as a short order cook. Um, he cooked breakfast for us every Sunday morning. And in the afternoon, he'd segue um, into some of the blues guys, um, particularly was a big fan of B.B. King mm. and, and Bobby Blue Bland. Um, yeah. And he loved Hammond B3 players. Um, yeah. So listening to a lot of Jimmy Smith and a lot of Jimmy McGriff, and that was every Sunday. Um, and I didn't get it when I was a kid. I couldn't hear it when I was a kid. Um, but as soon as I got away from it. Uh, when Were I you like me that you like thought your parents' music wasn't cool and then later? <laughs> you know, because you know, I'm, I'm a 1970s kid. Um, you know, I, I saw the Jackson 5 at age 5, you know, when they came to Madison Square Garden in 1970. <laughs> um, wow. So I wanted to listen to my Jackson 5. Um, and, you know, this is the uh, what I would call the heyday of New York City radio. So I could hear some from black, I can listen to Frankie Crocker on, on the black radio station, WBLS. Uh, but most of the time I was listening to the pop stations. I was mm -hmm. listening to WABC. Um, I was listening to Imus, you know, on NBC when <laughs> it was just him playing music and not <laughs> being Imus. Um, <laughs> so my my particular listening habits was stuff like Elton John, um, Chicago. Um, you know, those are the kind of groups. I mean, even to this day, right? It, uh, wow. That's the kind of stuff I listen to. The the radio jocks in New York City, um, Harry Harrison, um, you know, uh, you know, being one of them, and, and Dan Ingram, and it's just all these, and, and they were all white guys, right? yeah. <laughs> all these white guys that, um, you know, in some ways, when I became a professional at what I do, um, I'm also channeling the way that they talked. Right in terms of diction and, and stuff like that, but that wasn't my dad's music. You know, my dad, um, it was this heavy blues and gospel thing, and I didn't hate it, but I couldn't hear it. Right, it, I, mm. I I wasn't into it. It wasn't until I went away to college, and I started to miss some of the rhythms and the consistency of those Sunday mornings, 
Um, and I started, you know, going home and recording some of those albums, putting them on cassettes uh. and taking them back to college with me so I could just have that connection to home. And at least by the time I got into my mid-20s, right, it became something else, right, because it became a way that I could connect to my father's world. Um, and then I could also understand what this music was for the people who were so tied to it. Wow. I don't know. It's, it's like really emotional for me yeah. hearing you say <laughs> that. Um, it's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, how did... How did you, so you go to college? Where do you go to college, and how do you be? How do you come, Doctor Neil? <laughs> so I, I went to you know I was a, a SUNY kid, State University of New York. Um, they're one of the largest public institutions in the country. They got sixty six campuses. Um, I went to the undergraduate campus in a place called Fredonia, which is actually and folks don't quite understand. Well, in California, you might understand this. Um, but Fredonia, and which is outside of Buffalo, is eight hours away from the Bronx. So it's like as far as I could go <laughs> in New York State without leaving New York State. And did you want to kind of get away? I did want to kind of get away. My, my, my mother was, uh, you know, before there was a term called a helicopter parent. Uh -huh. <laughs> before there was technology <laughs> that allowed parents to be helicopter parents. Um, my, my, my mom was a helicopter parent, right? So, so I needed a little bit of space. So I picked this place called Fredonia, you know, in the snow belt, um, about 40 miles from the Pennsylvania border and then 40 miles from Buffalo. And it was a music school, and I wasn't studying music. They had a, uh, an engineering 3-2 program. So I went to college expecting to come out with an engineering degree wow. <laughs> at some point. Um, What's 3-2? Uh, I would do three years at Fredonia taking my liberal arts classes, uh -huh. and then I would do two years at one of the campuses that had an engineering program. Okay. Um, so I'd spend five years, but come out. Um, with both a, a liberal arts degree and an engineering uh -huh. degree. Um, but I never made it past the, the chemistry and the, and the calculus. And when you were a kid, <laughs> what did you want to be <coughs> mathematician? Well, so, so, you know, New York City has these, um, and they still do, but when I was growing up, they had these specialized schools. Um, my parents sent me to this parochial school, the Seven Day Adventist School for K through eight. But they didn't want to send me there for public school. They were hoping to get me in some place where I could have kind of a leg up. So New York City had these um, specialized schools that you ta had to take exams for. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, the most difficult one in Manhattan, Stuyvesant, um, which in 2017, like, is like, you know, they're like 2% black kids in that school now. Mm. Um, and then there was one called Bronx Science, um, which is the one that I was hoping to go to. My best friend's sister, in fact, went there. And then there was the, the one in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Tech, um, which was an engineering school. I didn't get into Bronx Science. I got into Brooklyn Tech, okay. <laughs> you know, which meant traveling two hours, traveling in total four hours a day to get to school because I had to take a bus and two trains. Wow. Right? up in the Bronx, you know, all the way down to Brooklyn, uh, downtown Brooklyn, so it wasn't that bad. I wasn't going too deep into Brooklyn. Um, but it was this engineering. So it was a school that had a working foundry, right? So we had to take foundry class, right? So we get this quality liberal arts education. I'm picturing you with like a like welding shield on. I, it's, <laughs> it, you know, we, were, we, we would have woodwork classes, so we would 
design things in wood as a model uh-huh. and then we would go into the metal shop and then we'd actually cut stuff wow and then we'd go up <laughs> into the foundry <laughs> put this stuff in the dirt and pour the molten and it was wow um at know, what age I, this is us at like 14 15 is you know this is high school it's this, awesome. this is high school <laughs> and it's and the school had an interesting kind of reputation um because it was right in downtown Brooklyn. it was very diverse um we had 6,000 students in the high school. Wow. Um, and about a quarter of them were white, um, but white ethnic, right? So it's complicated. <laughs> about a quarter of them were Asian. Um, and while the majority of those Asian students were Chinese American, um, there were a few Korean and, and, and Japanese students. About another quarter was Latino. Um, and again, that's complicated because it's Puerto Rican, it's Dominican, um, it's, you know, cats from Honduras. And then there was another quarter of us that were African-American. Um, mm. But, you know, even that's complicated because some of us were African-American, some of us were Caribbean. And there were probably just a small number of, of African immigrants in the mix. But it, it was this incredibly diverse and cosmopolitan space. Lou Ferrigno graduated from there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the year that I got there, so I was on, you know, we were in school at the same time. Um, the, the the founder of Living Color, the guitarist Vernon Reed, he mm-hmm. graduated from there in 1976. Um, uh, so it, it was that kind of place. Spike Lee's store, uh, Spike's Joint, was across the street from the school. What was that store? Uh, it was, he sold uh, Spike paraphernalia. <laughs> uh, so he sold all the books that he did for his early films and the t-shirts and the hats, you know, his little side hustle uh-huh. <laughs> that he did with his films. Um, so the school was was a great space. Um, a bunch of Nobel Prize winners. and um, I was not a particularly good student. Um, really? Yeah, but it gave me a good enough foundation that to, to be successful going into college. I met my wife um, in that school. Wow. But so at the time, do you have dreams of, of, of your future, your job, or no? I didn't have dreams. My mother had dreams. Um, and so I'm at this school, and they had a couple of different tracks that you could take, electrical engineering. They eventually had a computer science program, which became very popular, uh, mechanical engineering, and they had a communications um, track. I wanted to do the communications track. My mother was like, you ain't got a job. <laughs> right, so I ended up doing the mechanical engineering track, which I hated. Um, and it turns out that, you know, I, I probably would have been better suited for the communications track, right, because it fit right into right into my wheelhouse. So, you know, when I go to college, kind of following this dream of wanting to be an engineer, having gone to this engineering high school, um, I get to college and I can't hang with the chemistry and I can't hang um, with the the calculus um but i found myself writing some damn good poems wow <laughs> and, and i had uh, a professor um her name is karen mills courts um, i had the chance to see her earlier this year in fact um i was taking a creative writing class with her and when there were good poems in a particular week she would pull them out the pile and have folks read them um and i wrote a poem that you know she kind of put on display and and told me that i had some talent um, and that changed my trajectory, right? I was I was going to be a poet, right? I was going to be a writer, not knowing what that was going to look like. Um, I was a horrible college student. When I tell folks that my undergraduate GPA was 2.19, um, 
and, and I have to put that in some sort of context. I was an English major. Um, I had a three point whatever in English because I liked those classes. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the books that I was reading. You know, I'm reading Thomas Pinchon. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, uh, I'm reading uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, not a whole lot of African-American authors yet, um, but I'm reading folks that I love. Um, Camus, um, who mm. I read in high school. I read The Stranger in high school, so I was interested in that kind of French existentialist stuff. Yeah. You know, on top of it, too. Um, but I also, you know, was lazy. <laughs> Didn't like to keep up on, on the work. Um, and I was also a campus activist. Um, and there were just so many opportunities to organize and not go to class <laughs> or, or to organize and, and not do the best work um, that I was capable of. And so that's what my, you know, my undergraduate career kind of looked like. Well, how did you get into organizing? You know, we had a black student union. This is a campus. We had 5,000 students at Fredonia uh, when I was an undergraduate. And at, on a peak year, maybe there were 105 black students okay. on campus. Um, and so we had a black student union that had to be particularly deft politically um, to navigate student government and other stuff. You know, this is before campuses had like multicultural offices, you know, so we we're kind of out there on our own. And, you know, one of our strategies, and this, this again comes from my mentor who was um, becoming a minister of the Nation of Islam, um, when he became president of the organization, I followed him up. Um, he, the BSU didn't give any parties because he wanted to make sure that the organization was seen as a serious political organization. Um, so there were going to be parties. Somebody else could give it that the organization didn't have to. Mm. Um, at some point, you know, there were dozens of us who were in student government. Um, so the stuff that would be passed politically had to pass through us in order to be, it was really an interesting strategy on how a small group of people who are largely marginalized in these, these kind of situations can try to find some way to have some influence. Um, and we were entrepreneurial <laughs> also, you know, we, um, had this donut and coffee operation, right? Where we sell, <laughs> you know, this is before they were sticking Dunkin' Donuts on campuses. You know, we sold coffee and donuts, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, every day, right? And basically, you know, we're, we're selling to 150 white kids every day, right? I'm sitting here with this dude who has gone from Donald Smith to Donald Muhammad, <laughs> who, as I'm sitting there selling coffee and donuts with him, he's proselytizing for the nation of Islam. He hands me a copy of Hakeem Abudi's, um Enemies of Class of Races, and it changes my life, right? I read this book, I'm like, oh, wow, right? He made me a reader, right? But, but still, we're selling donuts to 150 white kids mm. a day while this is going down. And what we did is that it allowed us to, the, the student government at the time allowed us to keep the profits, and so we used that to be able to do stuff for our organization. We were so successful at it that A, student government at some point dictated that student groups couldn't keep the profits. <laughs> and then other groups started selling coffee and donuts. <laughs> so there were two things. One, it reminds me of, it's not it's not a perfect uh, like metaphor, but it just reminds me of one of the, in the first course I took of yours, um, and this is sort of like a humble brag story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it was a, is it titled a Hip Hop 101? Yeah, it was something, yeah. <laughs> and you asked about 
the t- the nature of Black Panthers in the neighborhood, uh-huh. and you had a question on like their community programs, yeah. Yeah. and uh-huh. no one raised their hand, and I raised my hand, and I said they gave breakfast to the kids, <laughs> and you I gave me this that. look like I remember that. How do you know that? <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm gonna tell you, Mike. Um, <laughs> I've been teaching. I've been teaching the college level now. Um, as a PhD for about 21 years, and I taught some classes before then when I was in graduate school. Um, and when I first saw you in class, you reminded me of another student I had when I was at SUNY Albany. His name was John Roberts. Mm. Um, and John is finishing up his PhD now um, at University of Massachusetts Amherst. In uh. um, the very first hip hop class I ever taught um, at SUNY Albany, um, this is fall of 2002 John was in the class um, and John changed the way I thought about my students because uh, in this room that was overwhelmingly black um, he was the cat who knew more than anybody else <laughs> and, and what it taught me is that I had to pay attention right I can't I couldn't make assumptions of what people what I thought people knew mm. um, and you know I've always been very open about the kind of students that were in my class um, I've always thought it was critically important to have non-black students in my classes. Um, there are a lot of black studies departments historically that that see black studies as kind of a safe haven for black students, right? The place they can come to, given what it, the reality of being on some of these campuses. And I get that, um, but it, it was always important for me to have white students in my classes because if I was doing what I was supposed to do as a teacher, um, they would get something out of that experience that allowed them to become agents when they were in spaces um, where someone else, you know, where there weren't enough people in that room that could actually credibly tell what the truth was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you when you came when I came across white students and, or even you know Asian students who were just so committed to what it was. Um, that they were sitting there, they were eager and they were earnest, they wanted to listen, and they actually came in with stuff to the table. It was always important for me to to encourage that in that mm. context. Yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. So, how did that book change your life? What was the title again? It, it's called "Enemies: The Clash of Races." Um, it's Hakim Abudi. Um, he during the 1960s was called Don L. Lee. Changes the black arts poet. Um, changed his name to Donnell to Hakeem Abudi. Um, started a publishing company um, called Third World Press um, in Chicago in the early 1970s. Third, Third World Press is still up and running. Um, and so Donald Muhammad, minister, who's now Minister Halim Muhammad in the city of Buffalo, um, we were sitting there having a conversation, uh, and he asked me, "Well, you know, what if white people stop?" selling black people and he named the various assortment of things right and the last one was like what if they stop selling you toilet paper <laughs> and and what he was doing to me is having me had think about issues of self-determination and building community organizations and businesses and what have you um and this was him in some ways channeling stuff that he had been reading in my booty's book and he gave me his copy um, which I destroyed. It was dog it was destroyed until I was able to replace it like, mm. you know, 15 years later. Um, the best part of the book, though, 
um, and you know, my buddy's a great poet, but he would also write these kind of nonfiction essays. And uh, Enemies of Class of Racists is all essays. Um, but he would have not just a bibliography, but a book list in the back of the book. And I just mm. went through all of those books. Um, one of the books I, I, I always remember on the list um, is a book by a guy called the name of Jerry Mander. And it's published in like 1983, or even earlier, it's probably 1973. The title of the book was Four Reasons for the Elimination of Television. <laughs> um, and so he was reading everything and everybody, and so he would put this book list in the back. Um, and the book singularly made me a reader. Um, my relationship with, with, with Donald Muhammad singularly made me a reader. And I'll tell folks, you know, part of that 2.19 was that I was much more interested because it wasn't like I wasn't doing work. <laughs> I was putting in work. I just wasn't putting in the work that I was supposed to be getting graded for. Right. And I would go to the library, you know, on, on Saturday afternoons at, on campus and just hit the 185 section, sit on the floor and just pull books off the shelf. What's 185? 185 is one of the, you know, in that kind of uh, library catalog system. Uh -huh. The E185 section is one of the sections where you would have black arts and black aesthetics uh -huh. books. Um, and so I would come across names, you know, in the back of some of the books I was reading. And so I'm pulling Baraka's stuff off the shelf. I'm pulling Hakeem Mahbudi, Donnell Lee's poetry books off the shelf. I'm pulling Sonia Sanchez off the shelf. It was like I was having this interesting, intimate introduction to all of these folks. So, you know, as uh, you know, a member of the executive board of this organization, I had the chance to bring all these folks to campus. Um, and so, you know, I had to, you know, I, I, my booty came to campus twice. Um, I, I, to this day, remember the two times that Baraka came once when I was an undergrad, another time as a grad student. And so what are you doing? Are you writing their publisher? Are you're, you're getting these people you're reading. Well, there's, you know, we have budgets. You know, they gave us a very nice budget to program Black History Month because the university didn't program it, right? The Black Student Union had to do okay. it. Okay. So we're, count, you know, we're contacting these speaker bureaus. And so how know. do you do that? Specifically, writing a letter? Uh, we're called, this is, you know, call, call, call folks on telephone. Right. And who are you they, calling? Their publisher? Calling the their their um, speaker bureau rep. Okay. Because they would send out little booklets, and we call them up, and we want this person, that person. It was yeah. <laughs> wow, and that also reminds me of maybe the second week in the first course I took. <laughs> you gave assignment to read Jeff Chang's book. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the title. Must be can't stop, don't stop. Yeah, and so you said. Wait, so like I'm taking a hip hop class and I'm like, I'm going to know everything. Right. Yeah. So I walk in and yeah, I think the first week, like you're like, here's the book, like have this book read by yeah. next week. I'm like, okay, this is a real class and I don't know everything. So I read the book, I come back next week. It's Jeff Chang's book <laughs> and we're singing class and you sit down you're like, all right, everyone, welcome to class. I want you to all say hi to Jeff Chang. And, <laughs> <laughs> and he was there. The, you know what I mean? Like we just spent all that. week reading his book. That. And it was such a, it blew my mind. Like that, I'd never been in a class like that before. That was the class that, that Allie TA'd. 
I think uh, so. I don't uh, really remember. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yes, and Jeff came to class. And so what you're doing, you're, you're still doing that, right? Yeah, I guess it's, there's still a version of that that, I, that I'm doing, yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I wanted to talk about this notion of, actually, before I go there, because you, you touched on it a little bit. And I, before the last few days, I've been texting with some of my buddies who we took your class with. And I see you guys got any questions for Dr. Like Neil. Skinder. Skin, <laughs> I didn't hit Skinder. I hit, I don't know if you remember, Ray Caesar. Uh-huh. And so he had this question about, and it ties in because it sounds like you you read that, I forgive me his name. Hakeem Abudi. And it seems like you guys flipped it. You were black selling to whites, right? right? As opposed to being sold to a white man's toilet paper. Right. Right? So one of Ray's questions was, he says, has has the flight of successfully, and the reason he asked this question is is off a J. Cole tangent. So I don't know if you saw J. Cole's last tour, but you can watch on YouTube. (laughs) Anyone listening can. He tells this story. And he has video mm-hmm. of he bought this house in the suburbs recently in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And he set up a studio in the basement and he's having artists from all over the world come through. Come yeah. through and he's, he's, he's doing nothing but beautiful things. Like really like making art to inspire right. people in this house. And it's in a white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And... So, he had, and it inspired the song My Neighbors Think I'm Selling Dope, I think. Right. So one of his neighbors calls the cops on him and they th- and thinks that they're selling drugs because right. there's, there's black people black coming in and out. Right. And, he, he, and he plays this on the videos at his shows. There's this surveillance footage. These cops, they're in SWAT gear. There's like nine of them. They bang down his door and he's narrating it very comically. This like... There's a, a like uh, a shot of the outside of his house, right. and and he's like, look, he's like, there's this dumb dummy inside. I think he's about to find a trap house, and he like bangs through the door, and it's outside. You know, he's like <laughs> looking around, confused, and he very poignantly at the end was so he's upset, etc. At the neighbor, the cops, but then he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but why? Why do I want to live in this neighborhood? What is it about me that I want to leave my people and live with these white people? And so Ray's question was, has the flight, I don't know if, I don't have any proof behind this, so maybe we (laughs) rephrase it, like, because it's not quantified, right? But there's a perception that successfully members of the black community leave to wealthy white neighborhoods and has that prevented the development of the black neighborhood. So for Ray, there's this perception that like the Jews stuck together and helped each other out. And how do you deal with that? Is that as real as it seems to Ray? Um, And what do we think about it? So it's complicated, right? you have enclaves of people who share religious beliefs, who share ethnic backgrounds. Um, and again, we have to make a distinction because you know, not all white people who live together are living with each other because they're white. 
Right. Right. They might be Italian. They might be Irish. Right. So ethnicity, you know, plays a or part. religion. Right. You know, you think about a city like Boston. Boston is about ethnic enclaves of whiteness. Right. Not just, you know, de facto, uh, <laughs> we're white. We're going to live with each other. But um, you're able to do that when you're able to buy property that allows you to do that. Um, when you consider the kind of history of redlining. You know, the kind of stuff that ta Coates has been talking about the last couple of years. And, and what's redlining? You know, redlining is the practice of, of essentially um, denying black folks access to mortgage rates that would allow them to move into more um, sustainable neighborhoods, if you will. Um, and so they get forced to live in neighborhoods where housing properties are going down, the quality of life is difficult, there might be high crime rates. Um, so there's a literal red line, right? We're going to keep the black people living here and, and everybody else can, can live elsewhere. Um, what that has meant for, for black communities is that it's very difficult to be able to build and maintain communities where they are homeowners and property and own property, right? And of course, home ownership is so critical to the development of wealth in this country. Um, you know, 75% of any individual family's wealth generally comes from their home. And if you don't own a home, you don't have access to wealth. Um, what that looks like is that, you know, the average white family has about 11 times the wealth of the average black family in, in that context. Um, if you're a upper middle class or even middle class black person, right, what you have to find is that sweet spot um, because you don't want to, and, it, and it's funny because this is stuff that we see on TV that is comedic, right? This is what the Bernie Mac show was about. This is what blackish is about, right? Moving your family into a space where they'll have Fresh much Prince, more maybe Fresh too? Prince, even. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's why he leaves Philly to come. Okay. Um, but moving your family into spaces, you know, where they have access to more resources schooling, quality of life, mm -hmm. <laughs> little league baseball leagues, I mean, all that kind of stuff, um, and trying to weigh what gets lost when they no longer have that kind of cultural connection, right, to a black community. Like, yeah, you can go back every Sunday to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can choose to send your daughters to the black Girl Scout troop <laughs> in the old community. I mean, there's all those kinds of things. Um, very rarely do you have black families who are moving in these spaces, sending their kids back to, I mean, cause that's, that's the primary motivation, right? To send your kids to, quali you know, better quality schooling. Um, I, you know, I don't think there's any one way to tell black families how they should feel about these things, right? You want to be able to make decisions that enhance, you know, what your children are able to achieve going on. And sometimes that means living in neighborhoods that give them access to things but also introduce them to other dynamics right so suddenly you know if you're all the stories we've read for the last 50 years you know about middle class black families moving into black neighborhoods and and what happens to the teenage boys you move into white neighborhoods Mo moving into white neighborhoods Sorry. right yeah. and and what happens to the teenage sons in those settings what happens where they begin to get profiled you know, at 13, 14, 15 years old because somebody can't figure out why this two or three pack of black boys are walking through their neighborhood um, when... So know, they basically experienced the J. Cole thing at, at absolutely. 13. At, 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 absolutely. Um, 
you know, we, when we first moved to Durham, rented a house in, in a kind of mixed race. So mix. you moved to be professor at Duke? We, this is from, we, I was at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay. Um, so wait, so you finished PhD. How do you, where do you go to school next? <laughs> so so after, right, so let's backtrack, right? You know, should so, we or should we keep going with the... Well, let's go with this and then I can okay. go back. Um, when, you know, I, we moved to dorm in 2004. Um, I was teaching at the University of Texas at Austin um, and it got the offer to come to Duke. My oldest daughter at the time was five. Um, my youngest uh, was still an infant. She wasn't even a year old yet. And, you know, we rented a house in a kind of mixed race, mixed income neighborhood, actually still very nice cul-de-sac. Had never lived in a cul-de-sac before in my life, didn't know what a cul-de-sac was. (laughs) 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 Or or why anybody would want to live in one (laughs) until that moment. Um, And we rented in part because we need to get a sense of the landscape with the schools and things like that, right? Everything is about schooling in these communities, right? As long as the best schools are going to be in places that have higher incomes and, you know, where there's a working class community, the schools are going to not be so good. That's that's going to be part of the dynamic. And, uh, and, and then w- why is that? Is it that the funding is based on property that's tax? That's absolutely thing? That's absolutely is it. Why, right, we, right. why, why not come f- up with other funding models, right? That's, we haven't figured that out uh, yet. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Um, it's, it's so archaic. And, and even in some of these um, communities where, you know, higher income, even they push back sometimes on how much of their tax should, taxes should go to, property taxes should go to schooling. Um, you know, if they think that, you know, whatever reason or other, they disagree with what goes on in public schools. I mean, that's part of what the, you know, the push towards uh-huh. charter schools in this country, in part is, you know, about relieving some of the pressures, quote unquote, of, of the property tax, mm. you know, in terms of schooling. Um, but then we moved from that neighborhood um, and we lived on campus for two years, faculty and residence program, um, which, you know, to this day was something I'm, I'm glad that we did. Um, even though it seemed a little weird at the time, um, because it demystified the college experience for both of my daughters. Um, so at a very under young age, they got to you know got to see college life up front, got to live on a campus mm. for two years. But then we bought a house in South Dorm, in which there were three black families in in the community. Um, and I always remember, you know, when I would go walking. Because um, it was a nice little hilly place, and you know, mapped out a nice little three mile walk thing that I could do. Um, I never went out the house without carrying an ID with me um, and my phone, because um, I always expected there would be some occasion um, when someone would see me walking and not quite know what I was <laughs> or who I was. And call somebody, and, and I would need to have some sort of ID to show I I pay a mortgage on that house, yeah, down the block. Um, and that's that's kind of a reality for for many you know folks who live in you know black folks who live in these kind of quote unquote integrated neighborhoods. Um, you know everybody everybody black and middle class is looking for a black community that looks like that. <laughs> Um, and and there are a few that that was what Prince George's County was for a very long time. Prince what is Jack, that Jack in Maryland? Um, but you know it's 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 a challenge. Um, we're living in North Durham now, um, 
and there are issues now that we have to deal with that we never had to deal with <laughs> in South Durham, like making sure our car doors are locked and right. things like that. Um, but there's also a kind of connection to community that, that I had missed. Um, I, I often think about the two neighborhoods. Um, you know, Thursday nights typically would be the night that uh, we would order out. And when we lived in South Dorm, that was always Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> when um, we moved to North Dorm, um, there's a Golden Crust. Golden Crust is a chain of, of Jamaican restaurants mm. that were founded in New York City. Um, now that we're in North Dorm, you know, Thursday night is Golden Crust night. <laughs> Right, totally different kind of aesthetic, um, but it's, it's a challenge, right? But it um, sounds like that's part of this lineage, though, too. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's and I, part of the gifts maybe you want to give to your daughter. You know, I grew up in working class black and Latino communities, right? I grew up in the South Bronx. When I moved from the South Bronx at 10 years old, I moved to. Uh, a section that, you know, we always called Northeast Bronx, but it's actually Southeast Bronx. Um, Cross the river from Bronx River, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, Bambada and all those folks wow. did their work. Um, but when we moved from the South Bronx to the Southeast Bronx, we actually moved into housing projects. So while, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was a classic kind of setup, right? There was a highway, Cross Bronx Expressway, the same Cross Bronx Expressway that ran through the South Bronx, right? Um, you know, it takes you to the Whitestone and the Dogs Neck Bridges going into Long Island. And so the projects were in between these two highways, essentially cut off from white residential, white Italian neighborhoods across the highway. Mm. Um, and so even in that space, even though in some ways the quality of life was better, we had grass. You know, we could go play sponge ball. <laughs> we could play touch football. In, in the project? In the project. Because, okay. so, you know, we had all these grassy knolls. <coughs> so in some ways, the quality of life um, was better, um, but it was still growing up in a, in a working class black and Latino neighborhood. Um, you know, really the first white neighborhoods I, I lived in was, you know, when I became a college professor. And so and it's been, this has come up the last couple of days. I Yesterday... This sweet young guy's name is Tank One, uh -huh. and he produced the song Rockstar for Post Malone, which uh -huh. is like the number one song in the whole world right now. And this kid, he's 20 years old, uh -huh. and it's his like first hit. And so we're just, we were hanging out here yesterday at the house, and um, we're, ta we're talking about kids. He's like, I'd never want to have kids until I have like, like chauffeurs and like the whole thing and it was so interesting to me because i've been thinking about having kids like it's something i think about now right. i'd like i'd like to have a family yeah and i think of the opposite like like I don't have chauffeurs, but I've done well, you know, but i don't i think about well, not because you don't want chauffeurs yeah well like i don't I think about making it like intentionally harder for my kids, <laughs> like you. you know. You. So they, like, there's this, there's this tendency to think that moving to a nicer place is a better thing for our children, yeah. but those those things maybe should get untangled. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, I have these two. And there's a difference between like safety yeah. and affluence, right? right? <laughs> difference between safety and like gritty. <laughs> yeah, they're like life, you know? You know, it's it's funny because, you know. And I, I ran into that when I got to Duke because yeah, I was right. so blessed right. in growing up where I did, which is we experienced this. My dad used to always tell me, uh, I was two, my big sister was in third grade, and we lived in Detroit. And my mom had just had it with the schools there. Right. And they loved like the neighborhood and the whole they they're white obviously but from what i can tell we go back to the neighborhood from what i can tell like it's mostly black people right. and they like they loved the neighborhood and they still do like they would always say they're going to go back and but my mom the way she tells it and they tell it different is she she wrote the state and found where the best school public schools were right. and she found this little pocket of Southfield and Southfield borders Detroit and demographically it's similar to Detroit. It's about, I think in the last census, maybe it's like 70% African-American Detroit's like 80 or North of 80. And, but the school, I lived in that neighborhood, my school, I went to Birmingham school. So it was just like the next suburb up. Right, Right. And, my school, anyway, she tells us, she said, she said, Johnny, that's my dad. We're going. You can come if you want to. <laughs> and so obviously he came and uh, that's where I grew up. My school had everything. Like we had a trailer park in the district. We had this like very affluent neighborhood of like Uber. There was like one kid that was like really like his dad worked for Quicken Loans. He had like a basketball court in his house. And... It was this wonderful mashup of everyone, everything, and I, I was in the middle. Yeah. I mean, there were definitely kids there with much less than me, and definitely kids there with much more than me. And I didn't know that was cool until I got to Duke, and I met kids that had just no concept of there were people out there struggling. There were people out there with less than them. And while I don't know what it's like to live that, I know it exists. And it's like, this was like so far removed from so many of, I mean, I know you work there still. So (laughs) from so many of these kids reality, it made me appreciate where I, where I grew up. And my father used to always say he, cause he was, he remembered the riots yeah. in Detroit, and he would say, "Listen, when he said anyone with money left, and he said if black, like my black friends that had the money to move out of Detroit, they did, right. and my white friends that had the money to move out of Detroit, they did, but he had more white friends that had money, right? right. So that's like the." He f- yeah, it's just an interesting like f- hearing the cross sections of your stories and when I run into those in yeah. in my own life, and then I of course grew up on the street where it was in the suburb that had like been white, but all of the families that were where the parents were like under sixty or fifty were black, except ours, 
you know, so there was like this old guard of like white people that had been right. there for a while. And right. then like everyone my age, like all the kids on my street were all black. black. Right. And like, that's who I played basketball. We rode right. bikes right. and right. got right. into trouble with it. You know? And yeah, it was, this is this cross. I mean, it's interesting talking about the J Cole thing and, and then thinking about my own life. That's, I mean, because that's the other thing that you worry about with, with your kids in that regard. You know, you want them to have a real enough experience so that, you know, for when things happen to them, um, that they're not surprised and shocked by it. Um, and the irony of living in these kind of upper middle class white spaces, you know, for some black folks is that, they get a they get a taste enough of a taste of that to to uh, be aware and wary of how racism functions because mm-hmm. your kids are going to experience in some sort of way even though they now have access to all these resources you know growing up in the hood and I, and I hate to use that kind of phrasing but growing up in the hood um, where your life is kind of defined by lack of resources but you don't actually have that much contact with white folks. Right. Uh, so trying to find a middle ground where, you know, I, I always say that one of the things that was helpful to me is that I watched mainstream television, you know, in the 70s. Um, I watched news programs, right? So it, it gave me some sort of sense of diction. <laughs> and oh, how this I is talk. my next question, yeah. And, you know, I remember sitting, um, my dad and I went to see Rocky. First, uh, second Rocky, Rocky II. Uh, we're in a cab, um, and I was giving the cab driver directions. I'm 13 years old. I'm not even 13. Yeah, about 13 years old. I'm giving the cab driver directions. Um, and he turned around and, and said to my dad, where are y'all from? He talks so proper. And it's like, I'm from the Bronx. Um, but it's because I had consumed so much media. Um, you know, Dan Rather, Walter Cronkite. <laughs> you know those kind of dudes. Um, that for me it was natural, right? Baseball, you know, and this is before Bob Costas, but listening to baseball games and mm. uh, and learning how to enunciate and things like that. Um, even though I grew up in the hood. So w- th- I've heard you refer as I think as code switching, yeah. right? Talk about that. Yeah, I didn't know what that was yet. But, um, you, but you can still do yeah, that, I right? Can, I, I do it well now. Yeah. Um, Maybe sometimes in the same well, sentence. That, that, was, that was the irony because, you know, when I went away to college, um, and it started when I was in high school, because, um, again, I'm the kid in high school. Um, you know, this is the early 1980s, right? Um, the year I graduated from high school is when Run DMC drops their first song. So this is Sugar Kill Gang and Curtis Blow and, and that kind of moment. And so I got peers that are listening to these early hip hop moments, right? The, one of the members of, 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 of the Crash Crew went to Brooklyn Tech. Um, so while all my peers are listening to these early days of hip hop, I'm listening to the police. <laughs> right? That's, that's what I'm listening to. Um, I'm listening to Rick Springfield. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so as I went to college and I had to fall in with an enclave of black students to be able to survive it, I had to figure out (laughs) how to communicate with them. Um, They pick up stuff that I, that my parents. So with this, but this is interesting because it seems like 
and I, I'm projecting, right? It seemed to me it would seem like for many black people it would be the op- like they would it would be the opposite. Say, right. So you you have this Walter Cronkite voice, and now you have now you have to learn how to talk to now, black people. Now I have to learn how to talk to because because even though we grew <laughs> up in the hood, my mother in particular didn't want me to be of the hood. Okay. Um, so that so that was a big thing with her, right? And it was so funny because, you know, neither of my neither of my parents spoke the King's English, but they make sure to put me in spaces <laughs> where where I would see some of that reflected. And so when I get to college, because if I'm trying to build, right, and have relationships with folks and do things, right, I have to figure out how to communicate with them. What helped, ironically, um, was that we weren't just talking about African American kids and we we're talking about kids from the caribbean yeah so we're all trying in some ways right you know with with the caribbean cats trying to figure out how to communicate to african-american kids right and again this is what 10 15 years after the immigration act so so some of these cats are like first generation right you know they they either came here as kids themselves or might have been born here you know shortly after the immigration act um and for me it was falling in with some of the caribbean cats um, and trying to figure out how to communicate with them, um, they made it easier for me to to kind of connect across language. Which is for the for people listening don't know, code switching is what. So code switching is this ability to be able to talk to folks in different kinds of ways, um, to be able to uh, to talk with folks who, who you're comfortable with in a language that you're comfortable with. But when you're not with those folks and you have to talk to other folks, and particularly the folks that you might view as more powerful than you, uh-huh. you figure out how to talk to them also. My best friend, a guy by the name of Frank Paul, uh, we did a group project in a, communica- in a speech communications class. And it was so funny because our project basically was on some sort of version of code switching in black English. We didn't prepare for it. Um, this is something that like we realized, oh shit, we got to do this today. <laughs> and so we got up in front of this class with 150 students and we just did us. <laughs> we, um, and it, cause you know, we came, we both kind of grew up in the same kind of way. His parents were more educated than mine, but we we're kids growing up in the hood or the fringes of the hood. Um, he also went to Brooklyn tech. So we had to figure out how to navigate. Mm all this kind of stuff. So we did a demonstration of this to the class. It was so funny because the white kids were amazed. The white kids and the professor were amazed. Um, I had a girlfriend in the class at the time who was pissed off because she know she knew that we hadn't prepared for it. <laughs> that, we, that we just went in there and freestyle. But, but that's also when I realized that, oh, there actually is something important to this, that, that in order to be successful, because it's not just even the black-white thing, right? You have to be able to communicate with folks in ways that make them comfortable, particularly if you're interested in, in them understanding your point of view and understanding your ideas. What that's meant for me in the classroom, I had a woman who, who took a class of mine when I was a young professor. Um, she was an older black woman. She was actually born in Jamaica, um, but she was raised in the South. And she had a particularly unique relationship with the English language. Um, mm we had taken a course in Old English. Uh, we're in the same class, um, and the professor didn't like the way she talked and asked her to drop the class 
Right, because he couldn't teach his old English class with this woman who, in his view, couldn't speak English. And I always wanted to make sure that when it was my classroom, that I created a space in the classroom where folks felt comfortable talking about the work in the language that was most comfortable to them. And creating that comfortable space started with me. Wow. Um, so, and, and you've taken my classes, you know, the, the way that I use vernacular in the classroom, right? That was important to me because that let students know, oh, okay. <laughs> right, I don't have to sound a certain kind of way. I don't have to be proper necessarily, right, in order yeah. to be able to communicate my ideas in class because the professor's telling me that, you know, even he, <laughs> right, is, yeah. is a little lax with it. Well, so, this is, there's a picture that a friend sent me I want to show you. Because as a white guy, right, if you, if you do that, right, if I code switch to talk, what's the right way to say this? <laughs> Is that cultural appro uh, appropriation? Appropriation, right. And how do you, so there's this chart, like, and it says <coughs> if a white person moves out, that's white flight, they're racist. If they move in, ge that's gentrification, they're racist. If they see color, they're racist. If they don't see color, they're ignoring racism, they're racist. If they don't partake in culture, they're not inclusive, they're racist. If they do partake in culture, it's cultural appropriation, they're racist. And so this was one of the big things I want to talk to you about because I'm very, very confused about it lately. Right. The idea of white guilt. Yeah. So... There been like for most of my life, I think I've felt white guilt. Um, I had th this sense of there are other people uh, that aren't getting a fair shot, and it's it's in part like my fault. Even if it's not personally my fault, it's it's my people's fault. And when I look at it, like logically, like um, the facts of it. You know, my family came in here like two generations to America, two, three generations, like after, like we, like we didn't own slaves, right. but there's this, there's this feeling, idea that, that I, that I've carried, which is uh, maybe I don't, I don't know what's best i should defer to a black person like on these kind of issues i like i couldn't possibly be an expert on how we should proceed forward because i'm a white guy right. um and i i wish i would have thought about how to more eloquently describe this feeling um i don't know if you if you got the idea but there's there's like a, when it comes to race um we should we should step aside as white people. And in re recently I've been thinking, wait, maybe that's maybe that's wrong. I don't know. And coupled with the fact that when I'm really being honest with myself, and I, I hate to say wish it wasn't the case, but if someone walks in a room that's black, the first thing I see is they're black. And how did that is that my fault that that happens like why does that happen and what do i what do i do with that yeah i think the crux of it is like we we are you don't want to be ignorant right of what's right. happening 
So there's obviously rampant inequality in our country, right? Like that's secret to no one. But does dissecting that, analyzing it and understanding it really well simultaneously reinforce it? Malcolm X, in his autobiography, um, towards the end, tells this great story. He had given a speech, um, I want to say up in Cambridge, and after the speech, a, a young white woman had come up to him. Um, and this gets portrayed in the film. It was a great moment in the film, too. And she asked, you know, I'm a white woman. I'm concerned. I care. What can I do to help you? And he says nothing and walks away. And, and in the autobiography, you know, he reflects on that moment. You know, and this is after he had gone to do Hodge. Um, and he's diff- thinking very differently about these things. This is late Malcolm. Late Malcolm. Okay. Um, and he goes, you know, I, I wish I had the opportunity to talk to her again. Mm. Um, and so Wait, so the experience was before he did Hodge? Yes. And late, he's reflecting right, at the end of his life. He's reflecting on this, you know, towards the end of the novel, uh, end, of the, uh, end of the autobiography before his death, after he'd made Hodge. And he's thinking about... And just for, sorry, just for listeners, Malcolm X, so Malcolm when X, he made right, Hodge... The, yeah. the national spokesperson for the Nation of Islam, um, probably the most well-known black militant of the 20th century, um, and, and someone who was an avowed black separatist um, when he was with the Nation of Islam. Um, but he goes to Mecca, has his pilgrimage, um, and as he writes in his autobiography, the autobiography of Malcolm X, he saw men of all races engage in practice in Islam, and it, it, it gave him the idea that perhaps there's a way to go forward in a multiracial context, right? So it's after that, and he's thinking about what his future is going to be, and he reflects on that moment with this young white woman, uh, how he wished he had that opportunity back, you know, to, yeah. to have a conversation with her. I think when you see the success of, of black social movements, political movements throughout the 20th century, they don't occur without white advocates. Um, whether or not that's the white folks who are literally at the table at the founding of the Nation of Islam, um, whether or not we're talking about young whites, college students, um, who take that trip down south, 64, 65, to organize. There was probably more attention brought to the civil rights movement because of the killings of Skorner and Goodman um, than any other thing in that particular moment. The fact that these two white men were killed and, and it's that weird dynamic. Jewish guys. Two Jewish guys, yeah. right? It's that weird dynamic where, you know, how do you utilize white privilege for the benefit, right, of the movement? Um, the Black Panther Party, to some extent, is successful in the late 1960s because of a white left, right? Because of SDS, um, because of folks, you know. <laughs> goodwill though perhaps misguided you know white folks like Leonard Bernstein and these folks who are ho- ho- uh, hosting fundraisers <laughs> for the Black Panther Party we're in that still in that kind of moment now I think um, where the only way we can have a very real discussion for instance around police killings um, 
is for there to be a vocal and vibrant and public white allyship with this. I think things get interesting in these contexts because, you know, if you're a white person, you're trying to figure out what your place is. <laughs> How much do you say? How much do you dictate your opinions? Um, we saw a little bit of that a few years back with the Occupy movement. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the strategies that the young white activists used in the, in the Occupy movement that graded some of the old guard civil rights leadership. Um, you know, ultimately, I think there is a space for white allies to do their best work um, in the places where they're most comfortable. Um, you know, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> you know, it is an interesting <laughs> kind of space to talk about race politics. Yeah. You know, with, with your white family. Um, you know, one of the things that came out of the kind of Donald Trump moment is that, you know, you had some, you know, very public and visible white af uh, white activists who's trying to figure out what happened. It's like, well, how much of a conversation did you have with your uncle or your auntie or your grandfather who likely voted for Donald Trump? That's actually kind of the first line mm -hmm. of defense. Um, and, and I think it's something that we have to struggle with. I, I think there's no question about, because you know part of it is that when you're a white ally, you tend to get more visibility. There tends to be a little bit more prestige, access to resources. Um, we see a kind of pecking order, you know, whether we're talking about activism or just even in the publishing world or journalism. Um, where whiteness might allow people access to things that black folks don't have access to, uh, or at least if they do have access to, it was a much more difficult path in order to be able to get to that point. And we have to have honest conversation, right? And, and part of that thing, what's the interesting dynamic is that so much of what folks think is that the, the work ends with the conversation. <laughs> you know, the conversation is about the preparation for the work. Mm. Um, and, and the quicker that we get to those conversations um, and deal with the challenges in those conversations, then they make it easier to get the work done. Uh, I always kind of fall in line with my man, John Jackson, uh, who taught at Duke. Uh, he's at University of Pennsylvania now. Wrote a book on racial sincerity. And his whole thing was that one of the best ways to think about how people are committed to movement is that look at their sincerity, right? I don't have a problem with any white ally or ally of any culture, of any color or culture that's interested in black issues if there's a real sincerity behind that, right? And if you're governed by sincerity, you know how to move in a room with your privilege. It's the same thing when we think about men who want to organize around um, pro-feminist issues, about being supportive around gender. Mm -hmm. You do that work, but you know if you're sincere about it, when you're in a room full of women activists, you know how to move in that room. You don't talk as much. <laughs> you, yeah, it's, yeah, a, you, it's you an interesting a little thing. Bit more. Because there's some of these guys, and maybe it's just me projecting, but sometimes the whether it be the man in the feminist movement or the white guy in the black, black movement, movement, 
there's something creepy about him sometimes that just like really reeks of inauthenticity and not always but sometimes like with the feminist one it's like I feel like some of these guys are just trying to like hook up with the girls. And it's funny, but it's not funny, funny. though. It's really it's, it's, it's creepy. almost predatory. Right? It's, it's almost predatory. predatory. And there's this the thing we got to deal with is are we are we helping to help or are we helping to be seen as the helper? Yeah. You know, we got the Instagram story out while we're carrying the sign. <laughs> And which isn't inherently bad. Like, you know, we want to share what we're doing, maybe inspire others to do but it. But if that's the limits of it, right, that's where. And, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it, the water gets murky. Yeah. You know? I, I think when you talk about kind of the creepy guys um, or the creepy folks, you know, when folks seem a little too earnest and and a little too excited um, in these spaces. I think that's when you start to have some concern. I mean, that's why I always go back to, you know, folks who are comfortable being themselves and being in a room and not having to be the focal point mm. when they're in that room, right? If you're a man with pro-feminist politics, you know, how do you come into that room and not make it a big deal that you're a man? <laughs> Yeah. That's invested in pro-feminist politics, right? If you're a white ally, how do you come into these rooms and not make it about the fact mm-hmm. that you're white and in your spaces? I mean, we started this conversation thinking about what might be described as reverse code switching, right? What what do we do with with the white guy who tries too hard, who's to, who's <laughs> to fit in, right? talking, who, who's trying to talk, right? Yeah. Who and you know, there, there's so many different ways to process that, right? And when I think about an actor, um, someone like Danny Hawk. Um, the thing that always struck me about Danny Hawk is that it just seemed authentic. There are those white guys that st- <laughs> I don't know the I mean, maybe this is not the right that talk air quotes black because right. they and grow they, up in certain kind of environments. And right, right. it's totally authentic. Absolutely. And then there's and like that, the comical guy like from the sitcom. It's like trying, trying to trying, say trying to talk black, right? Yeah. Or, or or you know I think what's more offensive. It's not the white guy trying to talk black, but the white guy who thinks that he has to try to talk black to talk to somebody black. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's, I'm reminded of my dad. We went to, we took a trip to, he never did that. We took a trip to Peru, Bolivia, and Peru. We went to Peru and St. because my sister lived there for a while. She was, she's amazing. She was doing like wow. water right wow. stuff. And we went to visit her and my dad, God bless him. He, would try to talk to. I mean, he was trying. He was just talking to people in English, and they spoke Spanish, you know. And like, he would just say it again louder. Louder. Like he'd be like, "I want eggs," and they'd be like, "What?" You know. <laughs> I want eggs. You know. It's like I ain't, I ain't gonna understand that any better, you know. <laughs> it was yeah. And then, so, should white males feel guilty? If you don't have anything to feel guilty about. If you don't have anything to feel guilty about. What do you mean by that? Hold on, say it in the mic. Uh, You know, if you don't have anything to feel guilty about, there's no reason to feel guilty. Um and I understand where that impulse comes Meaning from. Meaning like if you've never done anything. If you've never done anything. I, I, I understand where that impulse can. Again, the way for me the, to translate it as a black guy talking to a white guy about this 
um, the easiest way for me to translate is to think about it in terms of the work that some of us do around gender. Um, you know, it's one thing to have to deal with the fact that as a male, for instance, that you might benefit from male privilege, that you might benefit from patriarchy, right? That's not about having a guilt assigned to that. That's about your ability to recognize what it is and to be able to do work that allows folks to undermine that. Um, it, you know, it, but if you yourself haven't participated in sexual violence or in, in the worst case scenario or something like that, there's no reason to feel guilty if you're a man mm -hmm. working within these gender spaces. Um, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that feeling because I think that feeling keeps you honest. Um, it keeps you on edge. It keeps you from being comfortable in spaces that by right you probably don't need to be comfortable in um, because it's not a comfortable space, right? You know, it was not a comfortable space for John Brown to use as one example of that, right? It, it's not, to, you know, to do this work, whether you're a man doing pro-feminist work or a, a white ally doing uh, anti-racist work, um, it's not comfortable work, right? It's not safe work in some cases. Um, and whether it's for your ability to do effective work in these spaces or to stay safe, mm. um, you know, amongst folks who might be critical of you doing that work, um, you have to not fall into a comfort zone, right? You, you kind of always have to be on edge, I think. The, the N-word. <laughs> I got in an argument with my girl about the N-word <laughs> because she had an interaction with the young black man and he called her the N-word and she's a white woman. And the way it occurred for her was I'm almost saying this word that you can't say. I'm almost like dangling that right right but i've all you know and which i think it it can be used that way mm -hmm. i'm gonna call you as you can't call me it back i'm gonna use the word to you about you but you can't say to yeah. me yep, 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 yep. i've also been called the n-word by homies in detroit and it was like it occurred for me as you're my brother now you're one of us yeah uh, this like wonderful term of term endearment. Of endearment. Yeah. So what is there a is there a where you land on this? <laughs> so <laughs> I I think first of all we should be honest. It, it it's the only word I think in the English language that we don't accept might possibly have multiple meanings. <laughs> you know, words and meanings change. Um, I always think about you know folks talking about their frigidaires. Um, you know, the Frigidaire was a brand of refrigerator. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but it morphed into this other thing that, you know, when you say Frigidaire, you could just be talking about, like, any refrigerator from Sears. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the same thing happened with, I'm told it happens with Coke in Atlanta. If you say, I want a Coke, they say, what kind? Right. It just means any soda. It means any soda, right, or pop, right. Yeah. Um, Band-Aid, right, Band-Aid is a, brand of bandages right so so words change right and so we understand that it, it's also like it seems to be the only word that we seem to not accept 
has both a subtext <laughs> and a context. Mm. Um, you know, every word that we use in the English language is a context for its use, and not all those contexts are the same. And it's like, because folks are so afraid of the word, they don't want to unpack the context in which it's used to be able to discern, okay, this works or it doesn't. I love the word. <laughs> um, I, I don't love the, all the uses of the word and all of what the word has represent, but I love the word because the word does, for me, some very interesting aesthetic, artistic, and political labor. You know, within black communities, you know, where we don't, sometimes black folks don't want to admit that there are class divisions. Um, it was a way in which particular working class and poor black people were classed by middle class black folks, right? And it's not brand new, right? That was so middle that, class black folks would say it derisively right, towards to, to, to working class and poor black folks that, as if they're acting like <laughs> slave masters, right? right as as a way to to discern, right? We don't want to act like them. Um, and, mm. you know, this is a practice that exists before Ice Cube shows up, <laughs> you know, because sure. that's the other part of it. It's like everybody wants to pretend that, you know, all of this has become something in the last 40 years before hip hop. Um, but there are long held practices of black folks who've used this work. There's a, 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 a woman, she wrote a book. Uh, she's now deceased. She was a labor organizer in New Jersey. Um, I, I want to say her name was Shirley Jackson Lee and the title of her book is A Nigger at My Window it's her memoir published in 1978 um, she was in her late early 70s at the time and she talks about that when she was young first century to 20, first decade of 20th century when she was three or four years old she understood how black folks used it as an umbrella term Right, that it had multiple meanings, right? So there's this kind of rich history, right? James Weldon Johnson uses the word in the ex diary, the, uh, uh, the autobiography of the ex-colored man. I think where it becomes an interesting dynamic is that, you know, you're talking about its use in segregated and private black spaces. What happens when the word comes out into the public sphere? Yeah. And historically, the only context in which the word was in the public sphere is when white folks were using it as an extension of white supremacy and, and anti-black violence and anti-black trauma. So now, what happens when the word now enters in the public sphere and not only in that context anymore, in different contexts, right? So you're overhearing Black rappers from Detroit, black rappers from Compton, <laughs> black rappers from Atlanta, black rappers yeah. from the Bronx. Well, and it also seems to be changing. Even since uh -huh. since I left college, when was that 2010? Uh -huh. It seems like when I used to go to hip hop shows, when everyone's singing the words, and then when that word came, white people would skip that word, <laughs> and black people wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a jolly good time. Now you go to hip hop shows. Everyone says Everybody's it. Everybody's using it, All right? Because I it, don't say. I feel still feels weird to me, but I look around like everyone's saying it. I, you know? I think for millennials or post millennials, <laughs> the word is almost an empty signifier. All right, it's something that's been thrown around in the music that they listen to, 
that more often than not is about this is somebody who might be my people or this might be somebody acting a little crazy, right? But but the kind of racial discourses that have always been attached to it, I don't think post-millennials circulate the word that way. Because it's not being used that it's way. Not being used that way. The, the, the way problem is, right, there's still a larger society. <laughs> older. Older society. who very clearly understand the word in those terms. So maybe we're just all going to die. And <laughs> <laughs> like, how does um, that play out? But by the, sa- at, you know, by the same token, I pushed back against, uh, you know, the NAACP about a decade ago, you know, had this ceremony where they buried the N-word. <laughs> and it just struck me as ridiculous. Um, because ultimately, however we might feel about that word, and, and, and in the worst case scenarios, however nasty that word might be, um, in terms of what it depicts and what it communicates. I'm much more concerned about policies that actually treat black people that way than the actual use of the word. Wow. Um, and, and to use all of this energy to police a word, it, it's how I felt all those years about, you know, even until the stuff recently with, 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 with Bree Newsom. Um, but, you know, 20 years ago when black folks, you know, were really into getting rid of Confederate flags, okay, the flag disappears, but we're still dealing with failing public schools in South Carolina because of the policies. Um, I, I'm much more interested in organizing around pushing back against policies than pushing back against flags and monuments yeah. and, and the use of, of the N-word. Yeah. It's almost like, yeah, it's just... The, Alan Watts said, words are just symbols for yeah. reality. Absolutely. Um and the same way that money is a symbol for wealth. <laughs> and he used, to be, uh, he used to say, like, um, it's like the equivalent to eating the menu, right? <laughs> and my favorite one is uh, Ramdas. He said, um, all your words are fingers pointing at the moon. They are not the moon. Right. And it's easy to, easy to forget that we're just talking about the truth right, right now. We n- we're not, this isn't. Right, capital T truth. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I, I had this moment with Ray, uh-huh. my buddy, whose question I asked you. We were at a wedding. One of our other friends got married, and he was explaining to me how he had spent time with a a friend's family, a white friend's family, <laughs> and they told him they came back to him. And they said, "Oh, my father thinks you're so polite," <laughs> and he doesn't know. If the father thinks he's polite or he thinks he's polite for, for a black, black guy. guy. <laughs> and that w- that's that's where I want to circle back to this because it was like, okay, Ray, Ray just got born right. in that body. I just got born in this one. Right. And so is there a disc, is there like a disconnect or, or something behind who we are? Do you feel that? Like I'm not, do you, are you black? Or are you in a black body? I I always want to say that I'm black because I always saw blackness as more than what I physically present in the the world, right? For me, black is as much a racial identity as it is a cultural identity. Right. right? It's also... They identify that with with being Jewish. 
Yeah. Like I don't I don't do any Jewish holidays, but I'm Jewish culturally, like right. forever. Right. Yeah. Um I and, and for me black is also a political identity. Mm-hmm. Um that, that when you know, when I refer to myself as black, that's referencing obviously a whole host of experiences, but also a particular put a political point of view that I think that African American doesn't quite gather, right? African American explains where I come from. You know what my language might be, what some of my cultural practices would be. It doesn't explain my politics. Black, I think, gets more to the point Got of what, what my politics are, and you know, and it's it's a challenge, right? Because when you're one of these black folks, right, or you know, this is the experience of of Jewish Americans sixty years ago, right, when they're integrating Ivy League schools and and all these dynamics, um, trying to find that space where you think that you're being lauded for who you are as a co- as opposed to being lauded for being a smart Jewish cat or the smart black cat or the, or the smart Latina. Um, and it's frustrating because I think in some ways it's, it immobilizes you, right? And, 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 and one of the, the ways that I've been able to process it for myself so my oldest daughter is a competitive swimmer, um, and swimming is one of those organized sports that the more elite you are in the sport, if you're black, the less likely you're going to see other black people. Right. <laughs> um, and she always resisted being acknowledged as a black swimmer even though there was obviously so much pressure on her and not bad pressure to take on the mantle of going, look, I'm black and I do it so you can do it too. Because she never wanted to be in a, in a space where coaches and other folks were looking at her and didn't accept her as just a swimmer as opposed to being wild, look at that black swimmer. Um, and she never wanted to have to deal with that in the context of her white teammates also. Right, she wanted mm-hmm. to be just a swimmer on the team, not the black swimmer on the team. And I think when we have kids who have gifts that make them unique, right? And 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 I'll be honest, when when I was thirteen and fourteen years old, I I would say that I thought of myself as an exceptionalist. Um, Meaning not be, what? Not because I was smarter than anybody, but I knew I didn't talk like my peers. Um. I knew that when I'm walking through the halls of Brooklyn Tech with some of my white peers, because I listened to the police or because I listened to the clash, right, I could have conversations with them where some of my other black peers couldn't. Mm -hmm. Because I liked wearing penny loafers with pennies in them, (laughs) right? Um, And I wasn't walking around with, with untied Adidas, mm-hmm. right? I, I knew that made me exceptional in a certain kind of way as a black person. But I think I also realized by the time I got 15 or 16 years old that 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 wasn't a space I necessarily was comfortable with. What does it mean to be the one black person who's in these spaces? What kind of community is that, right? Code switching became the way in which I figured out how to navigate that space. Um, you know, I'm a baseball fan, right? And and baseball has the oldest fan base in the country. 
And so I'm 51 years old, but I don't think of myself as 51 years old. There are lots of ways in which I still feel as though think of myself as 34. Uh-huh. So when they're talking about, well, the average age of a, of a baseball fan is 55 years old, it's like, oh, <laughs> damn, that's me. <laughs> um, and if I'm having a, a public conversation with people about baseball, it is a bunch of white guys, right? Because black kids don't watch baseball. They, they rarely play it anymore. Um, and so that becomes one of my code switching, te- you know, techniques, yeah. right? If I'm in the taxi cab with the white taxi driver, right? Let's talk about baseball, uh-huh. right? So that you're not asking me what I do for a living, because then that becomes a whole nother kind of conversation. Yeah. The what? Te- what would you say is? I'll rephrase. What things are important to you in your whole life right now? Family, um, you know, and family, I think about it in a broad sense, right? I'm really talking about kin in this regard, right? So I'm not always talking about folks who might be deemed as blood relatives, but folks in your orbit who more likely than not are not actually blood relatives, but you are close enough and intimate with that you simply refer to him as Ken. Mm. Um, so Ken is important to me. Um, the freedom to do what makes me happy is important to me. And that's not about money. <laughs> that's about having a certain amount of control over my time how I use it, how I use my energy. Um, for me, that that really ultimately for me is is what freedom looks like, and that's really what I'm saying. That freedom mm. is something that is important to me. Um, Ken and freedom, yeah, that kind of <laughs> wow. That that covers a lot for me. Yeah. Those are good answers. Yeah. We'll, we'll allow those ones. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on right now? So I'm working on a couple of things. Um, uh, you know, I have new challenges now because I'm currently the chair of the Department of African African American Studies at Duke. So many more responsibilities that I had never had to consider before. Um, so that's been an interesting kind of transition at this stage of my career. Is it more logistical? Yeah, I, I mean, I have to physically sit in more meetings and Got it. physically pay attention to more email <laughs> than I normally <laughs> would have to. Um, and, and and even as sometimes email from students can be an imposition, um, they're very rarely email from students, right? So it's just, just a different kind of experience. Um, but I am working on two books. <laughs> um, I just remember being in class. You're like, you email me like, I might, I might. I might, might not. <laughs> You're like, look, I get a lot of email. Right. <laughs> that, that hasn't changed. <laughs> but I'm working on one book um, that really is thinking about what it's like to do black studies in the digital age. Um, how... Twitter and Facebook and other forms of social media, um, how digital culture in general, um, everything from selfies to 
our ability to capture little two or three minute moments of black studies and circulate them in ways that they hadn't been before. So one book is really about doing black studies in, in the digital age. Um, the second book is about, and I, I say old black men, but I'm not really thinking about older black men. I'm thinking about black men who are older than um, Tamir Rice and older than um, Trayvon Martin. Um, when we think about these shooting deaths, you know, there's a way in which we rallied around the young and the innocent. Um, what we mourn in Tamir Rice, what we mourn in Trayvon Martin, um, is the fact that they're not going to live to fully become who they were intended to become. We don't have those same kind of conversations about Eric Garner, um, who was 35 years old mm. and, and likely uh, older than that. He was 43 years old and likely suffering from heart disease. Um, and in other cases of black men who are in their late 30s, 40s, and 50s who get killed by police. I want to have a conversation about those men um, and the fact that those men might have made certain choices in their life in which they're not innocent, but they deserve to be mourned and memorialized for doing what they needed to do to be able to provide for their families and their friends and their kin. Mm. Um, so whether or not you're selling Lucy's on the corner or selling mixtapes or sitting in a car in Charlotte, North Carolina, waiting to pick your daughter up from the bus stop, from the school bus, and you're a little stressed out and you decide to self-medicate with some weed, um, you know, that person deserves to be protected also. Or, you know, the gentleman in, in North Charleston. What happened to that person for some of the listeners? He's so he, he's he in the basically, car. the cops rolled up on him because they saw him smoking weed in his car. Mm -hmm. um, and so whatever interaction occurred between him and the cops in which he eventually gets killed really occurred because of their suspicion around that moment. Um, and when you just think about, you know, high rates of anxiety amongst black men, mental health issues, depression, um, what you have is a high rate of self-medication, uh, some of which is smoking weed. Um, that's not a reason for you to get killed. No, not right. here. Right, uh, or a reason for you for someone to sus be suspicious. Oh, well, I mean, sorry, but when I said not here, like here, it's it, legal. To it's smoke like right, it, yeah. right. So many, and, uh, yeah. especially at this moment, we're in so many states. Yeah, you know, it, it's in fact legal. Or, or the gentleman in North Charleston. Not that. Oh yeah, I just want to be clear. I don't think that's ever a reason to get <laughs> killed. Yeah, right. Ever. Or the gentleman in North Charleston who gets shot in the back by the cops. He was running away from the cops. And part of the reason why he was running away from the cops is because he owed child support. And he didn't want to have to go to jail um, because he was behind payments mm. in child support. Um, th that There's no reason for us to, you know, for a person like that to be killed. And we have to find a way to talk about those kind of men. And, and actually what I'm arguing in the book is that these men are actually the carnary in the coal mine for masculinity in America, right? They're experiencing now what... What's canary and gold mine? So the canary and the coal mine is this example back, you know, in the early days of coal mines in the United States where they didn't know what kind of gases and deadly gases might be in a cave, um, in, you know, one of these places so in a coal mine. So they would send a canary in 
right? And if the canary doesn't come out, that was an indication that the gases might be deadly. Uh-huh. And so there's a way in which, metaphorically, black folks have kind of served as a canary in the coal mine for American society for 200 years. And what I want to argue is that these men are the canary in the coal mine for American masculinity, right? As we start to see an increase. Not just black masculinity. Not just black masculinity. We're, 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 as we start to see an increased number of 40 and 50 and 60-year-old white men who can't work. Right, and by that I don't mean they can't physically work. Like there's no work for them to do, yeah. or the kind of level of work that they have been raised to expect to be able to do, they can't do that work. Right, when you start talking about artificial intelligence, yeah. Well, um, well, the thing with when you hear Elon Musk talk about self-driving cars, right. This is in right. one fell swoop. Right. There were going to be just millions Truck of people drivers, out of work. I mean, so what we're talking about is a future of worklessness. <laughs> Right. And what are these men going to do when their whole lives have been defined? Their self-identity. Their self-identity has been defined by this idea of working. Right. And black men have been navigating this in various different ways for 30 years. Right. Do you, is your self-identity wrapped up in your work? <laughs> uh, I think I, I would like to say no. But again, going back to the, the one thing about my father that still <laughs> resonates with me Um you know, I, I'm unmoored when I'm not working. You know, vacations can be very difficult <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, you know, just spending a day at home with the family. Like, I, I hate snow days um, because I, I, you know, I get so used to a certain kind of routine. I'm with you. Of man. How I'm going, and there's a snow. And so folks are at home. And it's like, and I can't work the way I, 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 I hate that, right? So yes, a lot of my identity is still caught up in the routine of, if not work itself, the routine of work. So it sounds like I, I'm, a, I'm this exact same <laughs> way. And I told you I spent a week this summer in solitude, Dude, where yeah. I could literally do no work. Right. And I'll put by this time we put this podcast out, I'll release the podcast about that. But it was like, who am I? Right. I'm always running from thing to thing. Right. So, yeah, th- we might have this question where there may be a generation, whether it's me raising my kids or my kids raising their kids, where they have to teach that child what it means to be a man. But maybe that child is not going to have a job ever. Right. Right. And what does it mean to be a man if you don't have a job? Right. And I told I told you I told you it was the first thing when I sat down in that cabin alone and just to sit there and meditate. My first thing my mind did was create jobs, right. organize the spices, run up the hill three right. times for right. exercise. <laughs> and it made me think like, do like, am, is that my whole life? Are all my jobs just made up so I don't have to be alone in this room? Yeah. And it's a yeah, it's a real question. If who are we if we're not? Our, our work. work, and maybe that's just we're just productive in nature. Do we do? Is it, is it? When a when a black person walks in the room and the first thing I see is they're black, which it's it, I'm just, it's just my reality. Is that something I learned or was I born like? Because I can see someone making an evolutionary argument like, if there's a, a tribe that's farther away, they look different than you, you should be apprehensive. 
but then there's also like all this like the culture i've consumed my yeah. whole life and that maybe we don't know the answer to I, that i think there's no question that we all have been visually so we've been socialized visually to recognize race um and, and we can make all kinds of arguments about what the tribe from 800 miles look like and we can mm -hmm. notice that they're different um but i think in this particular historical moment in the, in the united states particularly in terms of media culture over the last 100 years uh, we've been socialized to visually recognize race the challenge is the distinction between visually recognizing race and attaching attributes to what you visualize right so i don't think there's anyone there's any problem with someone going that's a black person that's a chinese person that's a japanese person that's a Puerto Rican person, that's a white person, that's an Irish person. I don't have a problem with that. The problem with that is when you go, that's an Irish person and they act like this. That's a Chinese person and they act like this. That's when, and, and that's when you start talking about socialization, socialization versus learned behavior, right? Because someone is teaching you, right? And some of that is coming from the media and the media culture, some of that's coming at your dinner table at night where someone's telling you, you don't trust those kind of people because they do this. Mm -hmm. And I knew one who did that, and then I knew this other one who did that. Might be the only two that I know, <laughs> but for me, that's enough of an experience for me, sample size to say, that's how they act. That's when I think it becomes a problem. Yeah, and I think it gets, it gets confusing. I remember my high school, and we talked about my high school, they were, Maybe t 10, 15% of the kids there were black. Mm -hmm. In the honors classes, in the AP, I remember there was one black kid in one of the classes, and the rest were all white. Yep. So someone can look at that on the surface and make okay, black people oh, aren't have smart. Adjustment about, right? But it, it's more complicated, right? Because right. the black kids are watching the same shows that tell them they're not as smart, right? Right. And so. But and, for a lot of people, that's get, all the evidence they need. And right? to get into those honors classes, someone has to advocate for you. And, and if that person has a belief, the teachers that a black kid, right, is not going to be successful in those spaces. It, it reproduces itself. Yeah. And so, yeah, it becomes a self fulfilling yeah. prophecy. But it's but on the surface, smart white people can look at that and go, right. "What black kids aren't as smart as white right. kids?" Absolutely. It's a tough one. So last last one. Now, if you identify as black mm -hmm. culturally and in the political space, but if we go back to the metaphor of the swim team and your daughter, mm -hmm. aren't you doing the opposite as her? Aren't you saying like I'm bla I'm a black swimmer? In the so, world, so I, I I don't think it's the same because I think she's doing that in the context in which she's always going to be the exception. Mm. Um, you know, I I don't function in the world necessarily as an exception um, because there are lots of other black people in the world. Mm. Right? Um, but I think in her particular context, in a sport in which when she shows up on the swim deck she's always going to be the exception. I think that's a different kind of pressure, right? Because that, that's about, you know, what do we do with black folks who 
rise to particular elite status in particular situations. It's, you know, it, it's hard not to call Barack Obama the first black president. Sure. Right, because he's exceptional in that regard because there were no other black presidents. Um, and, and, you know, he's the, the best example of someone who tried to navigate that, right? He didn't want to be the black president, per se, right? Because he wasn't just the president of black people. But at the same token, he understood the historical importance of the fact that he was who he was and mm. happened to be president. And so, but like, so th- where I, the follow up question is, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it. <laughs> if, if America is a swim team, right is it counterproductive to say i'm i'm black swimmer if it was a multiracial diverse swim team yes but it's not that it reinforces what the difference between being black And, 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 and and difference is a complicated thing right because what you want to acknowledge is that we're all human, but we all obviously have different cultural practices and, and different religious practices. So in, in the in the like the literal sense of the word, inequality is not bad. Like uh, like my my culture, my history as a Jewish right. man is is not equal to yours. Not it's, better you know, or worse. Well, but you it's, know, equal is probably not the term. It's different. It's different, yeah. Because this is my thing about difference. But you are, I don't, we don't want to destroy that, right? right? right. And uh, become di- difference like, is important because it makes individual people and individual groups of people who they are. Um, the challenge is not to think that your difference is better than my difference mm. or my difference is less than your difference, but just to recognize it as being different and that there's an actual richness in that right the the american if we want to talk about an american project what this country is the strength of this country is in its diversity even if folks don't recognize that right but to have so many people with so many different points of view historical coordinates of very specific and different cultural practices are different that's what made this what it is Uh, and there's a strength in that Uh, i think there might have been a time maybe 50 years ago around the great society moment um, where there was enough of investment in what that was that people were committed to it on some level, right? Mm. particularly in urban America. Um, I think we've gotten far away from that now, right? And, and part of that is that is, is the very things I talked about, you know, as I think about this book on black masculinity, um, the larger society fundamentally has failed poor and working class whites. Um, It's failed a bunch of other folks also, but these are folks who have an analysis, a critique of what that is. And if you're talking black folks, these are folks who have a a history of organizing around that. Mm. Poor whites don't have that history, right? Part of of what makes (laughs) poor whites mad about Black Lives Matter is not that the issues aren't legitimate, but they're facing some of the same issues and they don't know how to articulate that. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's part of what the challenge is. I mean, that's, and one of the ways in which the white working class, the white working poor has historically been able to, to organize around their lack of resources has been through labor unions. Right. 
and with the destruction of what we knew as the infrastructure of labor unions going back 30, 40, 50 years, they don't have access to that anymore, right? So you have, you know, young white folks, right? Even folks who might be in their 40s who might not even have parents that belong to labor unions. Wow. So you have a, 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 a white working caste that legitimately has been left behind who've been told that the only thing they can invest in is this idea of whiteness and it's particularly appealing right because you get to feel a little bit better about yourself right but as you know as we could just look at the last year but your quality of life has not fundamentally changed now that you've overextended your investment in whiteness right there must be something else at play what made Martin Luther King so dangerous, and not the King, you know, the March on Washington King, right, that's trying to organize black folks, but when he starts talking about a poor people's campaign, yeah, that's not about black folks, but it's about white folks in Appalachia, right, and, and folks like that, that, that's when it becomes a different kind of, that's when he became dangerous, right, when he could make those connections. Because it became economic, right? right. It became economic became class. It became, you know, why are we sharing this these morsels and, and other folks are been reaping and benefit off of our our labor, out of our work, um, out of our off of our finances. Right. It seems like at some point, like as rich just get richer, like it has to be do you think at some point there'll be like a universal income? I think folks, and this is going to sound weird, I think there are very wealthy folks who want to gesture towards that to maintain a status quo. Um, Ah. Because what's in opposition to the status quo is a mayhem. Wait, is it revolution? Yes. Like we're gonna come with and take <laughs> and, your. And, you you have a fortress and we right. have nothing. We're and, gonna come and again, take it. It's 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 not about and it's not going to be about black and brown folks. It's me right. a poor and rich. It, it's 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 going to be poor white folks. Um, and that's you know that's what we've seen really like social security happens in this country. Right, what we see in the 1930s, where we start to see what is the socialization mm. of 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 public policy in the United States, that's coming after the Great Depression, and and you start to have poor whites who are beginning to organize in labor unions, in socialist organizations. Um, you know, that's when you and you know what ultimately staves that off is World War II. Um, you know, which, you know, kind of changes the economics of, of the situation. But um, th- I always feel that the key to all of this is is working class and poor whites. And what what is all of this? Is the goal that this, ca- like, does Dr. King's dream become realized? Can so, it be, so, be so, realized so, in a capitalist society? So let's be honest, right? You know, Dr. King's dream was rhetoric. Right. Right. But part part of it, right. it has to be a dream, right? right. It has like to, to it go ha- towards it has something to be that, that isn't. Rhetoric, no. right? Because, you know, when you listen to King, the last two years of his life, I mean, what he's actually calling for is a redistribution of wealth. Yeah, <laughs> right. And he can't say that, <laughs> right? So it has to be, 
you know, packaged as something else. Where do we find a fair and equitable means to recognize what folks' contributions are to the society? And for the folks who can't make contributions, what responsibility does the society have to protect and take care of those folks? The health of the society is connected to the health of the folks who are suffering, right? If mm. you have less folks suffering, you have a better society, period. Wow. The strength of the society is not in the strengthening of the top 5%. The strength of the society is in making sure that the folks at the bottom 5% have a quality of life in which they can actually feel like human beings in the society. Does Can that exist in capitalism? In your opinion, I would say that's above my pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think there's no question that because I would be someone that, despite how some of these folks, these well-moneyed folks, might feel, you know, if you don't guarantee an income, you have to be able to guarantee certain resources that people have safe living conditions, right? That folks can feed themselves that they have access to utilities like water and electricity. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at some of these municipalities that are cutting off people's water all right, because they're a couple of months back or whatever, I mean, things like water and electricity and, yes, Wi-Fi, right, that, those should be guaranteed utilities. Right, that that if folks don't have access to a lot of money, that there is at least some sustainability, right? And this is a country that's wealthy enough to be able to support that, right? Uh, and you know, generally speaking, the masses aren't represented in the folks who we elect. There is not a office. the Black Student Union isn't in the student government to use the example <laughs> no <laughs> no not not at this time uh, i would even argue that even when president obama was the president of the black student union wow um, but th it seems like we could like if the consciousness or the collective agreement of what mattered changed that could happen with within the system we have because the pro it seems like the problem with s socialism is that okay there's this big pool of resources and we're going to decide how to allocate it but who gets to decide and then those that who right. the deciders become the rich it seems like so one of the things i think we have to fundamentally come to terms with now um we have to give up on the allure of national politics national politics are obviously important when we think about the supreme court and the ways in which the federal government impacts upon our lives, we obviously must be concerned with national politics. But for most folks, their day-to-day -day realities are almost wholly governed by local politics, by who the mayor is in their city, mm. who's on the city council, who's on the school board, Who's in the state legislature, 
right? What commissioner is running <laughs> this utility? Yeah. Um, those are the day-to-day things. And when you see the percentage of folks who come out to vote for local elections, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, to vote on things that if they vote in the candidate that they think represents who they are, can actually change the quality of their life as soon as they are in office in ways that a president or a senator can't. Um, I think there's something to be said that folks aren't even encouraged to be interested in local politics. Mm-hmm. That your local news will spend more time talking about what's happening in Washington politically than is what's happening on your school board. Um, and so when you talk about trying to come up with much more equitable sharing of resources, you start by doing that locally, right? And if you can create something there locally, right, that's what you build upon. Um, one of the things that I think ultimately undermined the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther Party was at its strongest when it was localized, when it was something that was dealing with- Serving breakfast. Serving breakfast, right? When it suddenly has to take on responsibilities and have visibility nationally, right? It, it begins to fall apart, right? Because it's difficult to maintain that, right? Mm. And the Black Panther Party can't win in that context, right? The Black Panther Party can't win against Richard Nixon, right? The Black Panther Party can't win against J. Edgar Hoover. Right, the J the Black Panther Party can't win against the school board in Oakland, mm. right, or the police department in Compton, right. It mm. it can win that in ways that it can't win. It couldn't win on a national level. If you're talking to a young man or woman who isn't sure what they want to do with their life. What advice do you give them? Read. Read. (laughs) Find something that you're passionate about that you would do whether or not you made a lot of money doing it or not. Um, I just know, because I know you and I know who I am, obviously, that we're two people that we would be doing what we were doing regardless. Correct. Of whether or not, you know, we were seen as successful or had some resources attached to that. Um, I think too many young folks invest so much of their time and their energy, their education, in things that they think are going to produce a certain kind of lifestyle because they're going to produce a certain kind of income that they fundamentally hate or at least don't like enough Wow, to do it well, right? Or to the best that they could do it over the long haul. Right. Find something that you're passionate about that you are willing to do regardless of what kind of ways you're recognized for it. And, and lo and behold, if you do that well, it will be recognized. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Neal. Thank you for being here today, sir. Thank you, Mike.